Well, it's 2020, we're back, and we're talking to Dr. John Cooper today, so stay with us. Did anyone else feel slightly annoyed that it's only Dr. Jordan Cooper who got a reference in the opening? Yeah, well, what are the rest of us here? All right, Chuck so, so wait, 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 wait. <laughs> allow allow me, allow me. We have uh, we have Dr. Chris Kahi on the line. We have Dr. Yep. Jordan Cooper on the line. We have doctoral oh, candidate Michael Beck on the line, and yep. we have Andre, <laughs> just lamo lamo pasta guy. <laughs> Uh, no, in all seriousness, we've uh, we've got we know. I mean, everyone knows who Chris and Andrea are. I mean, I have to introduce you guys for crying out loud. I mean, you're old. I mean, you're you're having mutiny shows behind my back already. You know, <laughs> true, things are true. things are taking off. You know, everything's good. Um, but Dr. Jordan Cooper is the honored guest, and uh, he is Welcome. indeed a very honored guest. Welcome, Jordan. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here, man. It's uh, we were just saying before we. Uh, started recording. Uh, we're all just a bunch of groupies. We we plug your uh, podcast, Justin Sinner, all the time, and uh, we we you are our go to Lutheran reference. Um, and so it's really exciting to be able to actually talk to you about some of this stuff. And uh, we've just found all your stuff very very helpful. I'm also I'm also uh, particularly stoked that that you went to Sats, did your PhD through Sats. I did, and we got the same supervisor. So that's that's crazy. Oh really, Robert Falconer and Dan Leoy. I got a dual thing going on, okay. and uh, and I believe you had Professor Leoy. I did. He's he's the only Lutheran there. So yeah, that's right. It just kind of yeah. makes sense that I would have ended up with him. So yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean we've I'm doing it on Klein and the Two Kingdoms thing. Okay, interesting. So Dr. Falconer is the Kyperion on campus, and uh, and Dr. Leoy is the the Lutheran on campus, the Two Kingdom guy, <laughs> and so they they you know. I can't put a step out of line. Basically, they'll they'll beat me back and forth until I get it right. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I, I know. I'd be interested in hearing what some of your uh, work is on Two Kingdoms specifically. Yeah, well, yeah, we can talk about that uh, down the line, man. But I just don't want to use all, all our right. time. We've got so much to talk to you about, and um, and I want to make sure that we we get that in. Uh, but you know, the first thing, the first thing is just to really before we get onto all the meaty theological stuff, which uh, we're all going to enjoy. Uh, we really just to, we'd love to hear a little bit of your context. Um, I know you're a pastor in uh, a Lutheran church in the states in New York, right? Is that it? So I uh, yeah, I'll kind of tell you my my story here. I was a I'm an ordained Lutheran pastor in the AALC, so the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Um, we're a pretty small Lutheran church body. We're in full fellowship with the Missouri Synod, who's you know much much bigger than us. Yeah. Um, I served as a parish pastor for six years. At the moment, I am working uh, on campus at Cornell. So I'm basically doing a chaplaincy on campus, doing ministry with students oh, here cool. yeah. in New York. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'm still doing plenty of preaching around uh, at different congregations, but uh, it, it's a little different from a regular parish ministry right now. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. When did that kick off? When did you, um, was that the, be the beginning of last year, did you say? Oh. Yeah, this is, so I've done three semesters now. So okay, it's been a year cool. and a half. Well, which this. one, yeah. what do you prefer? Ah, uh, yeah. Different challenges, uh, yeah. and different, different things that are good too. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy college ministry, yeah. uh, especially, you know, being in a, on an Ivy League campus. These are students who are extremely academic, extremely curious, which is yeah. really what attracted me to this position. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of just hanging out with students, talking theology and answering their questions all day, uh, which is really fun. It sounds like an eschatological intrusion. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So so it's much more, um, uh, I feel like a little more in- intellectually rigorous in terms of a, a ministry position than probably in a, you know, parish in, in, you know, the rural Midwest, which is where I was before this. Okay. And, but I loved, I loved that as well. So, yeah. you know, just different, yeah, just different uh, seasons, I guess, different Man. callings. Awesome. So, hey, give us your rundown. I mean, just a quick story on how you, I mean, I realize you've told this story on your YouTube channel. And by the way, you know, everyone who's listening to this needs to go there and check it out. Uh, I know you're very active on YouTube and you got the podcast thing and all sorts of things going on. Um, and uh, maybe you could just give us kind of a summary, you know, what I know you started off in the reform thing somehow, yeah. or, or was there something even before the reform thing? So I grew up, I grew up in a family that was uh, reformed. Um, and so my, my mother converted at uh, 10th Presbyterian with James Boyce when he was there. Wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I was baptized into a, a PC USA church as an infant, uh, okay. but it was a, it was, it was a confessing PC USA church. Right. Uh, and they, they've since left the PC USA. I mean, this was quite a long time ago. Um, so, and then my parents were also part of an EPC church plant in Massachusetts um, later in life. And so I, I was very much around the Reformed tradition um, and went to a Reformed college, Geneva. So Reformed Presbyterian, RPCNA, exclusive psalmist, strict wow. Scottish covenanters, you know. So um, definitely been around the confessional Reformed world. Yeah. Uh, and it was at that time when I was in college that I was really kind of thinking through my theology in a lot more depth and trying to figure out, um, you know, initially just which seminary I wanted to attend, which Reformed seminary I wanted to attend. Um, I went back and forth. I thought about Covenant. I thought about Westminster. Mm. I thought about both Westminsters and spoke to people from from many different seminaries uh, at the time, trying to kind of figure out exactly where I wanted to go. And through this process, it's, it's a I can give you a lot of specifics, but the process of kind of looking into my theology and looking into some of the specifics and where I was leaning and where I wanted to go led me ultimately away from the Reformed tradition into the Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Did you have any exposure to um, to Lutheranism at all prior to sort of moving in that direction? Uh, not at all. Wow. Um, I, I, yeah. I mean, I kind of assumed Lutherans were just a bunch of liberals. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I knew of the ELCA, I guess, and, and I hadn't really realized that there was anything else out there. Mm. Um, the first time I had heard about Lutherans was I, I met someone in college who was uh, part of the OPC and he just joined a Missouri Synod church. And, you know, I, I was curious, you know, what is the Missouri Synod? I had no idea what that was. And, mm. and he explained what confessional Lutheranism was. And I said, Oh, I thought I thought the, the confessional reformed were the only option. Um, I, I didn't think yeah. that there really, I didn't really even realize that there was this other confessional tradition, I think for a long time. Mm. Um, so to me, that wasn't an option until I heard about it and said, right. oh, maybe I should look into that just to yeah. make sure that that's, <laughs> where where I, I think I uh, should be. That's yeah. That's really interesting because I think for most guys coming out of the reform side, kind of Lutheranism Lutheranism feels like a little bit like the strange cousin that we don't really know. You know, yeah. <clears throat> like we you don't really, you know, it, it, in the reformed world, you kind of rub shoulders with other evangelicals all the time from Baptist world and Methodist world and Anglicans and 
um, and all sorts and all these kind of evangelical things. But, but like you say, the <clears throat> I, I, I've been kind of asking around at at uh, at my church to see if anyone's ever actually met a li- a real live Lutheran before, <laughs> and and nobody has. Nobody's met a real live Lutheran. Like Man. it's a it's a crazy wow. thing, and um and it feels so weird because. Actually, I know there there are some some very real differences, but but really we're both you know part of the heritage of the Reformation, and you'd think there'd be a kind of closer intermingling, but it feels very distant, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, there are historical reasons for that, um, especially in the United States. Uh, and I think when when Lutherans came over to the United States, there there was a reaction against what was a forced union between Lutheran and Reformed churches, the the Prussian Union, and mm. that forced union uh, really caused Lutherans to lose their entire identity. And this is something that tends to happen whenever Lutherans and Reformed try to kind of come together. It, it often ends up leaning in the Reformed direction, and Lutherans lose their identity altogether. Um, for whatever reason. And that even happened in in the United States uh, within some Lutheran circles where uh, some of the early Lutherans in the U.S. were trained at Princeton, for example, uh, and ended up coming out with, you know, Hodge's view of the Lord's Supper, which, mm-hmm. which is an even more kind of Zwinglian approach than, mm-hmm. than many in the Reformed tradition. So um, because of that, there was this very conscious effort, I think, to come from outside of the Reformed tradition and so that the tradition itself, the Lutheran tradition, could be um, kept as it was without these outside influences. Um, so some of the reason why you don't really hear about us is because we kind of stick to ourselves in a lot of ways. Uh, now I don't do that really because I'm not from the tradition. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to break that mold, uh, in a lot of ways, but I think, so some of that has really been, been doctrinal protection. And so they want to make sure that their theology, their piety and practice really is is defended and protected and not lost, especially in the sea of kind of American broader evangelicalism. So in that's been both good and bad. It has been good in that the confessional Lutheran tradition really has been preserved uh, in those churches really have been, uh, I would say, less influenced by a lot of the, the problematic things in American evangelicalism than, than a lot of other traditions have been. Um, but, but the negative, of course, is that there's kind of been this almost seclusion and isolation so that there's not really any interaction with the broader church so that others don't even know that we really exist. Uh, I mean, I mean, you can be in the Lutheran church, Missouri Synod and go to a uh, Missouri Synod preschool and a Missouri Synod elementary and high school and in a Missouri Synod college and go to a Missouri Synod seminary and even mm-hmm. go to get a PhD at a Missouri Synod school. Those kind of things are pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, which certainly helps in terms of, of your doctrinal orthodoxy, but it can give you this very narrow view of what the church is. And, right, and right. It, it can isolate you in a way that I think is unhelpful. You know, I'm, I'm part of Acts 29 and, and we're all about church planning and that sort of thing. Is there a church planning initiative in, Luther, in Lutheranism? Do, um, you know, how do they solve that problem? How do we get more Lutheran churches? <laughs> you know, is there a way to actually deal with that kind of thing? How does it work? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> it's, it's something I wish I could give you a uh, good answer to. I wish I could tell you there's a very strong Lutheran church planting initiative, but um, there really there really isn't. And it's not to say that there aren't Lutheran church plants out there, but um, it in some ways it's really hard. Uh, it's really hard to have a church plant and and have specifically a Lutheran one, um, just because it is so different for people. And, yeah. and it's very, it seems like the process of bringing people into a Lutheran congregation is much longer because it's a, it's a very big difference, you know, from going mm. to a, you know, a Baptist to a Presbyterian church than it is going to, from a Baptist to a Lutheran church. Yeah. 
Um, and, and it's even different from from Anglicanism, and I think that's because of its Anglicanism has this kind of broad broader tent, you know, yes. than, than we yeah. have. Um, so it is it is difficult uh, in that way. Uh, I mean, the reality is Lutheranism is is not in in the West at least. I mean, they're um, you know Western Europe, United States. Uh, I don't know the situation in New Zealand. I know some about Lutheranism in Australia, um, and I know that. They have um, there. There is a, a confessional Lutheran synod there, but hmm. um, but I know there's been an issue of, of women's ordination that's kind of come up recently, and I don't know the details of yeah. that. Um, okay, but but um, John Kleinig is a is a big name there. All right, cool. Uh, who's a, yeah, that's a good. John, could I, um, Jordan, could I, could I butt in, yeah, and just ask if you know sure. anything about the 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 Lutheran scene in the UK? Uh, <clears throat> the the difficulty yeah. for me is that. All Lutheran churches call themselves evangelical, and um, and it's it, it that sort of for us is normally means that at least at least in theory, someone is holding basically to a, a high view of, of scripture. At least in theory, like you know, in amongst evangelical churches, not that simple. But at least you know kind of what sort of atmosphere you're getting. But um, I can't really tell. So like I, I there's a Lutheran church that meets once a month about 20 minutes down the road from me. But I have no idea, like, if, <laughs> you know, what sort of Lutheran church it is or mm. if it's any good, is it confessional? Um, I don't know if you know anything about the UK. Uh, there are very few confessional Lutheran churches in the UK. Um, okay. But that's not to say that there aren't any. Um, there are some. Um, I, I cannot tell you exactly where they are, but I can tell you that there are some that exist. Um, but many less than, than in a lot of other areas. So the thing is, uh, within Lutheranism, the term evangelical um, has, especially in some nations, the term evangelical means Lutheran because we are the first evangelicals. Uh, you know, the, the term evangelical at one time meant Lutheran. So in some, you know, the biggest- Of course you'd Lutheran, say that. <laughs> but yeah, of course. But, uh, you know, the biggest Lutheran denomination in the USA, also the most liberal, is called the Evangelical Lutheran Church. And- so with when evangelicals attached to a Lutheran church, it doesn't have the same connotation that it does uh, when you're speaking about an evangelical church. And so it could mean that the church is, is as liberal and progressive as it could possibly get. Yeah. Um, so uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I wish I could point you to yeah. uh, a confessional Lutheran congregation in the UK. I know there are some, uh, but uh, I, I can't give you specifics as to where they are or how to find them. So is it just the two... Um you mentioned the two synods or, or is everything quite liberal other than the one that you're part of and the bigger one? Is that right? Or no, there are actually, no, there are actually quite a few. So if you're, if you're living in the Midwest, um, <laughs> the idea that you'd never met a Lutheran would, would sound crazy because everyone's Lutheran. Uh, I mean, right. when, okay. I, I mean, when, when we were out, uh, you know, when I was out in Illinois, I mean, they were confessional Lutheran churches all over the place in this very rural County. I mean, within a 20 minute drive, I could find six congregations. Wow. Um, so it, it's very alive in certain areas. Yeah. Um, um, depending on where you are, you don't see it as much. So in the Northeast, uh, you know, it's, it's not, there are, there are, there are plenty of um, confessional Lutheran churches still, but, but not to the extent that you find in other parts of, of the United yeah. States. So um, in the West coast, uh, there are, there are plenty, but there's also, there's the Missouri Synod, which is, so they're the biggest confessional Lutheran church body. Yeah. Um, the, the AALC, we're uh, quite a bit smaller, but we're in full fellowship, which means we have doctrinal agreement with the Missouri Synod. Um, right. and 
we, we only have what about 70 or so congregations. Um, we have quite a few church plants out there right now, as well as, as congregations coming in who have left the ELCA in recent years. So mm-hmm. that number is, is growing right now for us. Um, there's also the Wisconsin Synod, mm-hmm. um, who is uh, kind of more to the right uh, than, than Missouri. Uh, and then we have ELS, who is very strict and very conservative as well. All right. um, wow. That's a, so, lot, that's a lot more yeah. than I thought. Yeah. Wow. There are a lot. Cool. And so, uh, Chris, you mentioned there is a Lutheran church in your town, right? Or We have two. two. We have a, a Missouri Synod church and an ELCA church. Wow. No so ways. The, the conservatives and the liberals. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. That, yeah. You weren't kidding. I can hardly believe it. Yeah, I mean that's amazing. You guys should spread out a little, man. Just get out of the states. Come, well, you know, know. It's, yeah. come on down. Occasionally, I'll have uh, friends ask me to help them find a church, and it doesn't matter where I'm looking. Uh, there is always an, uh, a Missouri Synod church, no matter wow. where I'm looking. I can't. Yeah. Well, that's a real. Um, it's it's helpful yeah, it to is. me to just paint the picture because um, I had no idea. That's crazy. I always thought it was yeah, very but- very minimal. Yeah. Yeah, there, there really are a lot. I mean, the, the town that I was in, in Illinois, we had a population of 5,000 people, and there were two confessional churches in that town. Hmm. Um, wow. So, yeah, it, it's, it's <laughs> it, there are a lot. Um, <laughs> and, and this is true outside of the United States. In some areas, um, there are quite a few African countries that have had that have pretty big confessional Lutheran churches. Hmm. Um, so we're not confined to the United States. But um, I, I find that a lot of my listeners um, that I get contacted from emails and, and other things are, are German and they tell me how they wish they could find real Lutherans in Germany and you'd have to go to the U S to find them as strange as that is. <laughs> wow. Interesting. Yeah. Cause uh, you know what yeah. I was going to say as well from South Africa, from, you know, it's been a while since I've been back to South Africa, but from, you know, mm-hmm. growing up there and um, Lutheranism for me in that setting was equated to a German club. You know, it was it was basically some German social sort of event that, you know, everyone everyone who mm-hmm. was from Germany or had family or and, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the only exposure I've had in New Zealand to any sort of Lutheranism is the same sort of thing. You know, so it's very, very German oriented yeah. and much, you know, much in the same way that a Presbyterian church would be associated with Scottish culture and yeah. would be having haggis, haggis nights and burns nights and that kind of thing. Wow. Never seen that. Is that a UK thing, oh, yeah. bro? <laughs> no, bro. That was me. That was St. Columbus. That was, you know, oh, I really? was part of a Presbyterian church in South Africa. Oh, that's yeah. a story right there. Yeah, totally. All yeah, right. Now, um, enough talk. Let's play, right? Uh, we want to, <laughs> now, right. now that we're completely caught up on Lutheranism and we know what's going on and, uh, I mean, we're total pros, uh, let's move into something that I know that... Uh, Chris is interested in, uh, in fact, right now on Glory Cloud, they're doing a, a Two Kingdom uh, or a Meredith Klein applied via Two Kingdom kind of thing at the moment. And um, and so it's on his radar. Uh, certainly it's on my radar. Uh, much of what my dissertation is about is on the Two Kingdom thing. And um, we know Jordan put out that uh, video series on Two Kingdom. Very, very helpful just in, in terms of engaging with uh, the Escondido uh, in comparison mm-hmm. to Lutheran school. And, um, and so, yeah, just, uh, he's the right guy to talk to you about this. Now, um, maybe we should just kick it off with one of your questions there, Chris. What do you think? <laughs> Chris, Chris, Chris has um, got a, a, just, I don't, I'm just warning you, Jordan. This is Dr. Kahi. He's about to launch some questions on you. Oh. All right, let's, let's go. Let's right. start. I'm down. All right. So, well, okay. So first I'd just like to say that to my knowledge, Meredith Klein never used the phrase two kingdoms. Uh, he right. distinguished between the covenant of common grace and the covenant of grace. Um, 
I think it's because of what David Vendrunen has been writing that we have what's going on. So, I mean, in preparation for this, I went back and listened to one of the lectures you gave at one of your conferences uh, critiquing that. And so for those out there that think that David Vendrunen and Westminster Seminary, California are teaching Lutheranism when they talk and write about the two kingdoms, what would you say are the most important differences between Van Drunen and the Lutheran tradition? Okay, yeah. Um, so I'm going to have to go back a little ways in my memory uh, <laughs> because <laughs> at the time we did this conference, I, I reread, you know, a, a right. lot of Van Drunen and reread a lot of the Escondido guys, and I, I haven't revisited them since. So it's been a few years. Um, so, so I'm sorry if I don't get the specifics totally right uh, at the moment. But um, I, I think really probably the biggest difference is that when when Luther First of all, it is worth uh, pointing out that the idea of two kingdoms like explicitly doesn't really show up in our confessions, uh, interesting mm. as, as that wow. is. So it's, be it's become this kind of bulwark of what makes a Lutheran a Lutheran, uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but it really is not even in our confessions. It's actually true about a lot of things, theology of glory, theology wow. of the cross, none of that's mentioned in our confessions. Uh, that, that actually has basically no place whatsoever in our entire tradition until the 20th century. Wow. Um, apart, apart from the Luther's Heidelberg disputation, but, um, so my mind so is I blown think, right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's surprising when people hear that, uh, usually the way that it actually was historically spoken about more so is in terms of, of the three estates, uh, where you have the, mm. the church, uh, and then you have, um, sorry, the, the, the family <clears throat> and then you have the government. So the, all these different spheres that that God is working in, um, but the two kingdoms is something that is used by Luther. It really was uh, very much used by people like CFW Walther and early American Lutherans, um, and I think to kind of talk about things like freedom of, of religion in the United States. But I don't really think that's a valid. That's maybe not to say that, that this isn't relevant to those questions, but it's not really the kind of question that Luther was addressing when speaking about the two kingdoms. <laughs> so when, when Luther's talking about the two kingdoms, he's usually uh, speaking about these, these two dimensions of the, of the human life mm. um, more so than he is. It's, in other words, it's not the church and the state. Mm. Okay. That's mm. the most important. If I can get one thing out to you in terms of Luther's understanding of the two kingdoms and what it is, is, and is not, it, this is not the distinction between the church and the state. Yeah. I think it's easy to make that connection when, when you're, you know, in America, uh, when you're kind of in a world post, you know, John Locke and, um, social contract theory and all of these kinds of things that mm. develop later. Uh, and while yes, Luther's views may have had some say in the development of those things in the West, it's really not what Luther himself was saying. So, uh, what these two dimensions or these two kingdoms are, are there is the, what he calls the kingdom of the right and then the kingdom of the left. Okay. And the kingdom of the left is the, the civil sphere and the kingdom of the right is the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of forgiveness. Now that in and of itself may sound like at first, well, okay, that means kingdom of the left is culture and the kingdom of the left is government. And then the kingdom of the right is, is the church. Um, but, but that's not entirely true because when we're talking about the kingdom of the right, we're talking about the, the spiritual kingdom, that which God rules through which God rules and reigns by his God. Okay, so God by the gospel, and that is the kingdom of salvation. This is what Jesus is usually talking about when he's talking about the kingdom of God. Um, and so this is the salvation of our souls, our justification, what we usually talk about is the, you know, the order of salutus, all of that fits into this, this spiritual kingdom 
uh, or the kingdom of God is within you, as Jesus uh, states. The kingdom of the left is all of just the regular earthly stuff we have to deal with. And so because of that, if we're going to express it in that way, we would say that the church actually has elements of both kingdoms within it. Okay, so yeah. the church is concerned with a couple different things. Now, one is the church, the church's primary purpose and function is the kingdom of the right, because the primary function and purpose of the church is to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments. Okay, God, grace down to us, and we receive those things uh, as we grow in faith. So that is the kingdom of the right, but a church also has to have, um, you know, certain rules that it functions by. Um, and this is anything administrative, any, uh, committee that the church has, uh, any council elder board, any of those things are part of the kingdom of the left because they're organizational and they're dealing with the proper, just functioning of things on this earth. So I think expressing that it, in the church demonstrates a fundamental differentiation between where, what Luther means by that distinction and then what someone like Van Drunen would mean mm. um, by that distinction. And there, there are plenty of differences, but I think that gets to probably what is the core and most fundamental. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And so on that point, <clears throat> you know, I suppose two things come to mind. Um, it seems like, you know, one of the big differences that are, that are going to be apparent then between the outworking of a Lutheran two kingdom position historically, or just with Luther himself, and let's say what Van Drunen is pushing, is that um, you know Luther was able because often I would look back on 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 the way that Luther sort of it seemed like he chopped and changed with like one day he's two kingdoms then he's all Christendom and then he's all but in fact he's actually being consistent because he he's you know and that that was the big uh, you know uh, eureka moment for me because you know he's putting it that all in the outward kingdom category if i could use those terms and and um there are things indifferent so to speak and so you, whether it's you know if the church has some involvement with the state on that external sort of stuff uh well at the end of the day that's not the the spiritual kingdom that's not the the uh inward kingdom and that that i suppose leads me to my 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 second observation um in that it, it almost seems, it feels to me when I hear you talk like that, or when I read, like recently I've read through William Wright's book as well, and um, and just mm. just sort of work through, you know, a bit of this inner, outer stuff, it, it feels a little bit Gnostic to me, you know, and I realize it's not, and I realize, I'm not sort of making that accusation, but do you, do you feel that as well? That almost, uh, you know, inward... Reform guys just don't like to talk like that, you know, where inwardly we're justified and inwardly we're in the spiritual kingdom and everything outward is kind of a thing indifferent. Um, certainly we have more place for the law in, you know, in terms of the Christian life. And perhaps that's the relationship right there is there's more, you know, we want to control the external a bit more than, than Luther did. Is it, would that be a fair assessment or do you think that that's kind of overreaching? Uh, yeah, there are, there are a couple things there. I think I'd give different answers to. So, yeah. um, you know, dealing with the, the question of inner and outer, that is a distinction that's in Luther all over the place. So if you read yeah. his, his treatise on the freedom of the Christian, I mean, that's really clearly all yeah. over. Right. Um, and, and I can certainly see how someone reading that would accuse that of being dualistic. Yeah. Uh, Luther being, being dualistic there, uh, especially, you know, a Kyperian probably who dualism is about the worst thing that yeah. you can possibly Fake adopt. Worse so, than death. Yeah. 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 Right. So, uh, <laughs> So Luther uh, is influenced largely by by a lot of mystics, 
uh, and medieval mystics. That doesn't mean he follows them in in everything that they say, but you do see pieces of the language that they that they do use often. Mm. Uh, people like Bernard uh, Johann Tauler and the, the Theologia Germanica, the anonymous author. Those are the three major mystics that are going to influence uh, Luther's thoughts. And they have this inner outer distinction. So by doing that, Luther is not trying to ever say that the inner is important and the outer is not. Mm-hmm. Just that those are two those two fundamental aspects of who the, who the person is, who we are, function differently. Mm-hmm. And And I think, so I wouldn't say it's, we don't see the law as important as the reform do in that right, context. Right. I think it's that we we put it in a different context because we have that distinction between uh, the the inner and outer man, but but also which is from Paul. I mean, Paul does use yeah. this kind of language. Luther's yeah. not pulling this from from nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, though, yes, there is probably some influence of Platonism on on the mystics, and then hence subsequently on Luther. Um, Luther also praises Plato at times too. But Mm. um, so, so when we're talking about, about uh, the kind of inner and outer, the way that it's, it's often expressed today is uh, in a a distinction that's been emphasized a lot in contemporary Lutheranism between the two kinds of righteousness. Mm. So you have this passive righteousness that's given uh, freely, what we usually refer to as justification. And then we have this active righteousness, which is our righteousness before others, which is guided by the law. Now, what's so essential about this is that this ties to this notion of the the two kingdoms as well. Right. Because when we're in the kingdom of God, the thing that rules the kingdom of God is purely the passive righteousness of Christ that is Mm. given to us freely. We receive through faith alone as Mm. as a free, perfect gift of righteousness, right? Uh, And we're perfectly right before God. We're perfectly justified. And however, we also have this life of sanctification, but we have to put it in the right context. So the life of sanctification is not put in the context of this establishment of our righteousness, of of our relationship to God, Hmm. but instead our sanctification is placed in, in terms of these earthly relationships. Right. And so it largely is about the outer man yeah. working out God's law externally for the good of those around him. And that's not to say that there's no, there's no role for, you know, the motivation of the heart and those kind of things at right. all in terms of our obedience to the law. Um, but I think those distinctions, those distinctions that are there in Lutheranism just aren't there in the reformed church. So I'm not sure that I would say the law has more of a role to play. I'd say it has a different role to yeah, play. Yeah. No, I like that. that. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, would hang you, on, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, that, okay, that, that is super interesting to me. I had no idea that was going on in, in, <laughs> in Lutheranism. Okay. Do you know, do you know okay. why, bro? Do you know why? Why? Because you're the only one without a doctorate. Oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, joking. Jordan. I'm sorry for the crass behavior of my brother, but he just told me. The, 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 oh, um, man. <laughs> Uh, I put up with the years of this guy. Well, 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 I mean, to be clear, I don't have one either, so I'm kind of dissing myself. And then the other thing is, uh, <laughs> what is a doctoral candidate anyway? It's just Jesse nothing. Duplantis has a PhD. I, just I think I think, we, I think we should measure <laughs> by how many books we've published, right? I've got naught so far. You guys, <laughs> I've written Jordan the book. Wins, I just haven't down. published it. Dude, we'll get back to Jordan's writing abilities. All right. So, but anyways, what, what did you want to say, Andre? Come on, stop hugging the time, bro. No, I've completely forgotten now, Mike. Thanks. Thanks oh. for interrupting my flow of thought. Oh my goodness. But I wanted yeah. to ask, okay, so I, I don't, I was reading um, the other day, just the perspectives on the Sabbath. Uh, you know, the, you know, there's that perspective series, 
published by, I don't know who publishes yeah. it. And there's uh, one of them that has a review and it has a guy I've never heard of from uh, Lutheran circles uh, writing the Lutheran side. I think it's Joseph Piper who wrote the reform side and a guy named Arend or Alland or something like that who wrote the reform, uh, the, the Lutheran perspective on the Sabbath. Yeah, and, that would probably be Charles Arend. Yeah, that's, that's the guy. That's the guy. Yeah. And um, the thing he pointed out there and I, I mean, I don't know if this relates to this. And my question is, you know, because I didn't really understand. It, it was quite a big um, paradigm shift for me when I was reading his thing on the Sabbath. Because he was seem, he seemed to point out that for Luther, uh, the Sabbath command wasn't really brought back in terms of the law, but in terms of creation um, and in terms of kind of natural law or natural theology. And I was wondering about how that relates to, uh, you know, that kind of natural uh, theology or natural law, or I can't remember exactly the term that he used, um, that kind of he draws this whole kind of Christian application of the Sabbath. Does that relate to the kind of outer man then? Is that that sphere? Yeah, so so the, the, the Lutheran tradition has a very strong stance on natural law, okay? There, there's a very strong natural law tradition with, within Lutheranism. Uh, and this is there from the very beginning. I mean, Luther in his, um, in his Genesis lectures at the end of his life speaks about this. He speaks about a general knowledge of God that you can gain uh, just through reason. He speaks about the moral law. Uh, he even speaks about things like um, blasphemy being obviously wrong just through natural law. You don't even need revealed law for that. Right. So he would see the, the Ten Commandments as really a summary of the natural law. And the Sabbath is a little different in that there's this very specific kind of cultic uh, context in which that for ancient Israel that that's expressed. But there is this underlying natural law. Now, there's actually a, a disagreement within Lutheranism over the issue of the Sabbath. Hmm. And this is a debate that you won't really hear about much today. It's not a debate that really happens um, because the Missouri Synod kind of rules the day these days. Um, but in the, the 19th century, there was a large debate about uh, what the what the command, what it remains in terms of the command of the Sabbath. So everyone agrees that there is some kind of some aspect of, of the command uh, to obey this Sabbath day, keep it holy. There is some aspect of that that is not just tied to the nation of Israel. That there is something in terms of our created nature that we have to obey that, and. There's actually a disagreement in the 19th century over the position of, of someone like CFW Walther in the Missouri Synod who um, had a kind of looser view of how this works to say that really it just means that there is this natural law that we have to take time to, to worship God, right, and to receive his gifts and, and these kind of things. Hmm. Um, and at least it's argued that that's Luther's view. Now, I think you can probably make actually a pretty good argument that that's Luther's view. Um but there are others, such as uh, Johann Gerhard, the most significant 17th century Lutheran theologian, which is then that position is reflected in many of the non-Missouri Synod Lutherans, uh, which is that there is in natural law a principle that one should take a day to rest during the week. Uh, and in, just in terms of, of natural law, this is better part of your you know proper functioning as a human being to take that day to rest. Um, so this so is there, part of that kind of outer, outer sphere, the outer man, and the the Christian sanctification that comes about more to do with our 
less to do with the kind of sacred uh, or less to do with the kind of I'm using reformed <laughs> I'm using reformed yeah. language yeah, I'm struggling <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know what I'm trying to get at like is this uh, is this part of the kind of outer man thing uh, in terms of the sanctification that you were talking about that's more rooted uh, less in um, the kind of relationship between man and God or in terms of the sacraments and that, but more to do with the relationship we have with each other, with creation? I mean, I, yeah, I would say Sabbath is probably both. I think it has both elements to it. Okay. Um, be, because the Sabbath, I mean, is ultimately is about faith because it is rest, picturing the, the rest that we have in Christ, right? Hebrews uses that. So that's certainly going to be talking about the right-hand kingdom. It's certainly talking about faith. and mm. But there is this left-hand element of it too that is just in terms of natural law and the proper functioning of the body, rest is a necessity. So uh, I think the, the command to, to observe the Sabbath probably has a little element of both of those things. Mm. Okay. Go for it. Um, what, one more thing on that is yeah. just the, the, the whole third use of the law in general. Where does yeah. that fit into the sanctification um, thing? I know that you gave a couple of lectures or, or talks on the, the third use of the law in Lutheranism. And um, so there's clearly some sort of element of debate about it. But, but from yeah. your perspective, what, what, um, you know, what is the role of the third use of the law? Um, and, and how does that connect with the left and the right and, um, and those two spheres. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, the, the third use of the law is, this has been like a major topic of debate within Lutheranism and I'm sure you don't want to give the whole history here, but just, I feel like I have to give just brief. Um, the, the 20th century, uh, was not kind to the third use of the law within Lutheranism. Uh, and it, it was said by some, Werner Ehlert made the argument that the third use of the law was really just this reformed idea that Melanchthon just kind of forced into Lutheranism and then Lutheranism devolved as they all bought into the third use of the law. Um, but historically in Lutheranism, I mean, this has always been talked about. Uh, I, I make the argument that read Luther's large catechism. When he's speaking about obeying the Ten Commandments, it is most often pretty clearly within a third, what we would call a third use context, mm. whether whether Luther uses that terminology or not. Um, there's been actually within the last even five years, there have been a slew of books and articles written in defense of the third use of the law from Lutherans and sanctification from Lutherans. So this is very much shifting away from where things were, I think, in a, in a bad way, um, which I think did lead to some of the issues in the ELCA. But um, so there is a, a very strong tradition of speaking about things like sanctification, speaking about the third use of the law within Lutheranism. Um, the, the thing that I think is, is different, and as you point out this distinction between our life, Coram Deo and Coram Mundo, um, the third use of the law largely is going to be applied in terms of, of our Coram Mundo relationships with other people. Mm. So uh, the, it's often going to be spoken of as God has fixed our relationship with him in Christ. Now we are called to obey God's law in relation to the people around us. Mm -hmm. And what, what that does is it means that the obedience to the law is not so much in, in the context of, of fear of punishment or of fear of discipline or um, fear of God just being, you know, angry with you that you didn't, you know, obey well enough. Uh, but the context is out of joy in the gospel, I can now live out that that obedience that I owe to God's law to the creatures, people, and the world around me. Um, so I think it it just puts the third use of the law in a different context. Mm. So <clears throat> when Lutherans speak about 
you know, the primary function of the law. We're speaking about the condemnatory use, which mm. we uh, refer to as the second use of the law, which I know the Reformed often referred to as the first use of the law. So for us, it's civil. Uh, and then we have the condemnatory use of the law uh, or the pedagogical use. And then it's the didactic or what we call the third use of the law. Um, so we would say basically it's this. In, in the Christian's life, we're living in these two realms, okay, before others and before God. And when we're living in relationship to God, the law is constantly functioning in its in its second use function. Uh, Melanchthon uses the phrase lex semper accusa, the law always accuses. And the, the point of that phrase is we're never at a point in our lives where we hear God's law and it doesn't in any sense accuse until we're completely glorified, perfectly sanctified uh, in, in glory, right? So we this is just not the reality of the Christian life today. So in terms of our relationship to God, the law always condemns us, but in relationship to other people, it's a different story. Now we're looking at the third use of the law. Mm. So it's in the context of my relationships with people around me that I'm looking at the positive function and asking the questions of how can I obey God's law? How can I serve my neighbor? How can I, um, you know, best do good for the people around me? Yeah. Yeah. That's very helpful. Um, uh, you know what I, you know what you guys should come up with, man? You should do like a Lutheran rosary that uh, has a skull at the bottom. And instead of the, the little mediation Mary pot, you put, a, you put the cross there. And then you put like 10 beads, 10 commandments all the way to the cross. And then you got the glory beads afterwards. I think that'd be awesome. You can condemn from skull to cross. And then you got glory beads afterwards. I'm going to put that. I'm going to make something like that. So you better get onto that quickly if you want to copyright it. Uh, you know, that we, we, actually, we actually do have a Lutheran rosary beads i have some I'm do you really well they really actually are right now but uh, do they have a yeah, skull on them they don't no <laughs> um they have they have a cross and they do have a luther rose um oh man we, nice uh, it, we we don't use them to pray to mary uh we just uh just to play <laughs> that'd be so cool uh, like, yeah but it, pull out your luther lutheran uh you know prayer beads and you just go through every commandment just beat yourself to a pulp until you get to the uh, cross and then uh you know you, there could, you, you could create like a like it has a sharp Bits on the end, like broken bone and glass, and you can whip yourself with it. Too no? far, uh, too far, too far. You nearly, nearly no, got yourself okay. kicked off. Okay, no, but 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 in reality, that's actually what we do with the prayer beads. Is is this is what I do anyway? I go through I go through the catechism, Luther Small Catechism, which is that I you do sit and contemplate each of the Ten Commandments and where where I have fallen short in each of them. No kidding. Uh, oh, so that's part beads. of it. Seriously, so, on the yeah yeah, yeah nice. it seriously is. Oh wow, cool. Uh, I need yeah, to check that out. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. That's a good idea. That sounds better than the Roman Catholic. Well, this is getting quite close to my idea of creating a tulipry, which is like a Calvinist rosary. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, boy. It's called a tulipry. Do you get it? Do you get it? Because tulip, Calvin, no, you really. know? And then yeah. uh, instead of a rose, it's a tulip. Yeah, anyway, I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, so, so, hey, uh, uh, Chris, we answered your question there, right? Yeah. All right. Next one. Okay. Um, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to, to help people understand that there is a difference. Um, and, and, and you did that. So I guess, I guess where I'm going is given that there are differences and that Van Drunen is not teaching Lutheranism, right? Wouldn't you say that there is more agreement than disagreement between what he's saying and Lutheranism? I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to sweep under the rug, but I mean, if we're drawing a Venn diagram, isn't there a lot of agreement there? I mean, at certain areas, it depends on what you're talking about, I guess. Um, okay. 
I guess more agreement than what? I mean, with a theonomist, sure. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly, I mean, I'm thinking when it comes down to um, any sort of institutional church aspects, that's probably seems to be the the widest difference there. But, but when it, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, the way we would view the kingdom arriving and progressing and commencing and the spiritual nature of that kingdom. And right. I suppose that's where you get into the theonomy angle. And, um, you know, we're, we're sort of, I suppose, I think you see a lot of similarities in terms of the way we think eschatologically, you know, we're just, we're, we're yes. waiting for something where uh, there is a, in fact, you know, let me just bridge into something, I, just in case I don't get the opportunity to do this, but I don't know if you've ever, um, Luther's, uh, the Luther's Works, Volume 44, Church and Society, uh, you must have it there somewhere. But um, there was this, it caught me by surprise. I was reading through the preface. A guy named Adkinson um, uh, says that, let me just uh, quickly pull it up. Luther built his doctrine of two kingdoms from biblical theological concepts such as A, creation and redemption, uh, B, two-age eschatology, and C, the relationship of Adam to Christ. So I was just reading, and then I actually just straight after that got into, um, who was it again? Uh, William Lazarus. I don't know if you've heard of that guy. Uh, yes. But a book yeah, on he's Luther. written right on two kingdoms. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he wrote something called Christians in Society, Luther of the Bible, and Social yep. Ethics. And uh, man, I mean, it felt like I was reading through bits of Klein, you know, as he was expositing mm-hmm. Luther and the whole, I mean, he's going through the, the covenants there, the Noahic preservation, uh, mosaic theocracy, distinctiveness of the New Testament era. It was, it was amazing. It was just uh, your comments, just to kind of squeeze a little bit of Klein in there somehow. Um, you know, <laughs> where, where, where exactly, uh, where do you see the major, I mean, when you read Klein, where, where is the hair standing up on your back kind of thing? Uh, wh- what are you freaking out about? Uh, what is the major problem? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Klein, so we're going jumping from Van Drun into to Klein here. We're I, still I do in Escondida, say... baby. We're still in Escondida. It's all good. All right, all right. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but we should keep it narrowed to the two kingdoms issue, right? yeah. I know there's a bit of debate uh, in, in terms of where Klein is at on Two Kingdoms. Same with, I know, I know republication uh, and some of those issues as well. Um, yeah. I think, to me, Klein teaches it, but I, I, I see it there. But I know someone like Lane Tipton doesn't, so I don't know. Um, yeah. Tipton's but... wrong. Tipton's wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I happen to think he's wrong on that too, but that's okay. Um, um, okay, so... Where do you see the fundamental sort of differences with or incompatibilities perhaps is a better word with Lutheranism. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of where there specifically would be with, with Klein. I, I mean, I do think about, I, I think probably my, and I, I enjoy Klein and I've used him plenty, especially when I'm doing Genesis. I mean, kingdom right. prologue is, is definitely the work that's, that's Im- impacted me the most of his writings. Amen. All right. You're um, in the cool group. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's all you needed to say. I wouldn't okay, call I it a cool group necessarily. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry. Last button. Go uh, for it, John. Yeah, I guess. Uh, and I'm trying to think of where I would where I would specifically draw draw the line, or like what would be the yeah. issue that yeah. I that I would say this is totally. And I I don't know that there would be an issue that I would say this this is bizarre, or you know when I read that I say right. this is terrible, or this is I'm a total disagreement with with this. Um, I, I think really it's. I, my my issue probably is not as much with Klein himself as it is some uh, Kleinians, mm-hmm. and really, I, I think this is true of any. I think this is <laughs> sorry, guys. Uh, this, this is true of, of of any author. I think that is when they have an idea that's really good, they probably use that idea too much, and in areas where it, it 
maybe is a bit of a stretch. Mm. And this is what I would say about Klein. Um, and I think maybe more so about, about some of those who follow him than, than Klein himself. Um, and so th the, you know, the structure of the Mosaic Covenant and suzerainty vassal treaties, you know, those, those things are hugely um, beneficial in, in looking at the, the covenantal structure of God's promise with Abraham as well as with, with Moses. Um, but I think I, I have issues with expanding that too much in making that theme so prominent that it, it kind of defines almost everything else. And, I, and I've seen Kleinians do this. I think you see that when you look at, um, you know, things like the, the inspiration of scripture being, being specifically just tied to, well, scripture is inspired because it's a covenantal document. Uh, and I'm just not sure that, that those kinds of things work very well. Uh, and I think that it's just stretching those things too far. So, and like I said, this is probably true of any thinker whose ideas I appreciate, because once you have a good discovery or idea, you, you tend to just force it into everything. Uh, and so my, my thought, my thoughts with Klein probably would, would line in, in that way. Um, the issue of republication would be one. I, th I think that, I mean, Luther in the Lutheran tradition, we certainly don't have that kind of language. Um, not that I disagree with a lot of aspects of it, um, but I think it overcomplicates things uh, unnecessarily. Um, but that really somewhat stems back from we wouldn't use language of um, a covenant of works in, in the garden. Yeah. Um, and that, that's probably when you're talking about reformed covenant theology um, and, and Lutheranism, that's really probably going to be the biggest difference. Yeah. Um, and, and just that the theme of covenant itself is not going to be as overarching as it is in the reformed tradition and it's not to say i mean clearly covenant there, there are covenants in scripture and clearly that's that's important mm -hmm. um but i think it's how central is that and do you use that as a framework to interpret everything else yeah would you say in lutheranism it's law and gospel is that the framework that's yeah i it, think right? so yeah because um, i mean if if, yeah, if we have one i mean i i don't know that we would say you know, it's the single framework. I think you do have problems when you when you overextend that too. Yeah, uh, I think you, yeah. there have been a lot of errors that have arisen in Lutheranism from calling everything law and gospel too. Yeah, in some yeah. ways, you don't want to do that with anything. But I, I think it would probably be, um, it, we'd probably say it like this. Uh, this is, and I've tried to think through this quite a bit in terms of how you'd exactly express the, the difference here. Um, and, and it may be that in within the Reformed tradition, law and gospel is kind of a consequence or comes out of the covenantal structures of God's dealing with his people. Hmm. And within Lutheranism, it may, we may say instead that law and gospel is really more central and the covenants are one of the ways that God uses to apply law and gospel to right. his people. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you read William Wright's book? Um, is that the, it's the two kingdoms is that the and one on, on Luther and yeah. the two kingdoms. What's the name of it? I, uh, I, yes, it? I have, but I can't. I, I read that prior to the conference. I think it came out not long before we did that conference. Mm. Right, interesting read, man. Wow, it's uh, just just the way that he talking about uh, overarching paradigms. I mean, he would he would yeah. basically think of the two kingdom aspect that way. I mean, he, it was a bit of a mind blow for me in that he was saying. Uh, you know, obviously he's making this strict relationship with uh, law gospel in the two kingdoms. As you said earlier, there's this definite, um, you know, gospel in the spiritual kingdom, uh, law in, insofar as the, the, the physical, not to use that language of Gnosticism, but you know what I mean? And, um, and what was so interesting about it is that he was saying that that actually 
became this rubric for every other doctrine. Um, and really, not only, uh, I mean, he was taking it all the way down to his epistemological certainty about things and his answer to the challenge of, of skepticism. So that was, I need to read it again. You know, it was just one of those, wow, this is cha- this changes everything. So I just, you know, he's not a complete Lutheran heretic, is he? No, no, I don't <laughs> all right. think so. No. Good, good. So he's <laughs> not... That I, not that- not that I remember for reading the book anyway. All right. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Well, anyways, um, we'll come yeah. back to that. Maybe that. Speaking, speaking of Lutheran authors, can I just quickly ask about one guy? Yes. There's, um, yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a book that, a couple of books that have been published by Fortress Press that I've been keen on looking at. And I just wondered if, if they represented Lutheranism well. The one was by a guy named Ford, I think, on the law gospel uh, distinction. 30. Yeah. 40? 30? 30. It's like Ferdy, spelled yeah. F-O-R-D-E. Yeah. Ferdy. Uh, I, uh, I wrote my dissertation against Ferdy. So, uh, <laughs> nice. I, <I'm> just, nice. <laughs> I mean, so avoid that uh, one. <laughs> I, I, I think that Ferdy has done immense damage to Lutheranism as a tradition. Um, uh, and, and I think that he is an example of someone who overuses the law gospel distinction to such an extent that there's basically nothing else in theology other than the law gospel distinction. Okay. Okay. No, that's helpful. Okay. So not going to buy that one. What's the other one? (laughs) The other one was um, also by Fortress Press in the same series. The name of the author escapes me, but it's called Lutheran Hermeneutics. Because at the moment I'm doing a lot of reading on hermeneutics. And um, I'm interested in Lutheran Hermeneutics um, because it just in some ways is surprisingly different to reformed hermeneutics but uh, i can't remember the name of the guy though it's so annoying off the top of my head yeah. but the it, ford it, one was the main one i was uh, the 40 30 however you say his name is the, um, the it, main one i was on is it in the same series it's the, spelled the... ford how can it possibly be 30 it makes no <laughs> sense whatsoever <laughs> this is the problem with with kind of correspondence education like uh, there's no. no way you would arrive at 30 from that name <laughs> no everybody says it wrong it's okay uh okay yeah I can recommend some good Lutherans. <laughs> <That's a> re- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please do, uh, it, John. No, honestly, um, I uh, one figure who I really in, uh, appreciate on the topics we're talking about. He's he's got a book on law and gospel, and then he has a book on the two kingdoms. And his name is Joel Bierman. Um, I have some of his talks on my YouTube channel. I don't know if you've seen those, but um, I've got an endorsement on his two kingdoms book. Um, cool. He uh, and I think he's done a really good job because basically what what he's tried to say is he's tried to go to these kind of sharp distinctions in Lutheranism. And, and so far he's written on these two. I, I hope that he writes on, on others as well, but, and tries to say, these are distinctions, not contradictions, mm. right? Law and gospel are distinct, but not contradictory. Mm. The two kingdoms, kingdom of the right and kingdom of the left are distinct kingdoms, but it's not that one kingdom is good. The other is bad, um, which these are kind of, I think, misconceptions and ones that are sometimes bought into by Lutherans themselves. Um, so he's got a couple, sometimes he comes out with things that are a little uh, controversial in the way that he says things are a little kind of shocking, but uh, I, I really have appreciated his work. Uh, if you want to see a contemporary Lutheran working through some of these issues. It's a great tip. Good. So who would yeah. you recommend to Andre in terms of uh, Lutheran hermeneutics? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, James Veltz is is probably the major at least more confessional figure who's done a lot on, on hermeneutics um, prophets at St. Louis. Um, he does a lot with philosophy, specifically postmodernism. 
Um, I think he does it very well and in a very nuanced way. I think he's a really interesting thinker. Um, so he's probably the one I would recommend, uh, but not necessarily an easy read. Mm, um, yeah. But oh, here's the guy I was good. thinking of, uh, Timothy. This is probably not how you say it at all, but Timothy <laughs> Timothy Wengert. Tim Wengert, yeah. Uh, Wengert. Wengert. <laughs> uh, yeah, Wengert is uh so he's he's very left-leaning on a lot of issues, but I also find him helpful on some other issues. Um his he had a book on um what church and, and ministry that I, I thought was extremely helpful. Um, I, I think he's kind of gone further and further left theologically um, okay. as the years have gone on. So I can't tell you exactly where he's at in that particular book. No, I would, um, I would be looking for someone who represents a sort of, you know, confessional. Lutheran yeah, he would, he would not. I, I think James Veltz would be your best, your best read okay. in that area. Okay. Good call. And then, Jordan, I've read your book, uh, The Great Divide, which I found very, very helpful. Okay. Anyone listening in on this uh, who just wants to get a scan of the differences, you know, in an accessible format, you know, just what, what exactly are we looking at here in terms of the differences between uh, uh, Reformed and Lutheran traditions? And uh, that, that was so helpful. Um, any any other books you can think of that that you, you would just throw out there to people that are just listening to this? Generally speaking, we've got a real mix of listeners, but, you know, that, that are just going, Lutheran what now? And uh, they want to check it out, you know? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got some books if there were, besides that. If, yeah, let's plug your books. Go check out, just just uh, just Google Jordan <laughs> Cooper and then get ready, um, man. Get ready. It's big. It's a lot, lot of books. A lot of books coming your way. A lot of them are nerdy, um, though, Jordan. A lot of them are like, no one's ever going to read those books. They're super in-house and super Lutheran, yeah, you know? Yeah, they are. They are. Eh, whatever. That's so, what I do with my life. Uh, <laughs> it's all right. I, um, no, I've got a book, uh, Hands of Faith, which is uh, a study of this idea of the two kinds of righteousness that delves into a lot of these questions that we're talking about. Um, so if, you, if you're interested in my books, you know, if I recommend you something, that that would be one. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. If, if you want to read, uh, I mean, I guess it depends on the topic. Um in terms of modern Lutheran writers that that I would recommend reading, um, I, there are a lot of ancient ones that I recommend over modern ones. But in terms of modern Lutheran writers, uh, I would recommend Joel Bierman and David Scare, probably above all all the others that are around today. Um, cool. um, Joel Bierman's at Concordia St. Louis. David Scare's at Concordia Fort Wayne, um, and he's he's Scare is excellent. He's got a couple of dogmatics volumes. He's got one on Christology and one on uh, baptism that I use in systematics courses I teach. Um, so I recommend, I recommend him. Um, uh, I recommend, I'm looking at my, I have my bookcases right here. So I'm here, here's a book. Uh, it's called, uh, the saving truth doctrine for lay people by Kurt Marquardt. I think this is a really good volume. I recommend to people all the time. Um, he's an excellent writer and it just is, it's kind of like a little systematic theology Great. going through elements of, of, uh, the faith, uh, and he, you know, he passed away not too long ago, but he's definitely one of the best uh, Lutheran thinkers in in recent times. So I could get plenty of recommendations, but I think I'll just stop with those. Those. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's difficult to. It's a difficult question, but yeah, um, yeah hopefully that's just. I mean, that sounds like a good good tip uh, from from my perspective. Anyway, I'll I'll check those authors out without a doubt. Um, I suppose on a on a more personal uh, note, how old are you? And how have you written so uh, much? And when did you start writing when you were like 10? Is that is that how this worked? I, I was 10, yes. Uh, no, I... Uh, <laughs> Give us the secret. Give us the secret. How does it work? How old do you think I am? 
I'm always curious. I mean, I don't know. Uh, oh. Okay, a, I mean, I'm, okay. All I'm right, going to say around I'm, 35, 35. Around I'm going to go 35, yeah. 35. I'm 32. Um, wow. Dang. That's like embryonic, man. Man, that, that's that's really insulting for Mike and Chris. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, I hadn't even read a book until I was about thirty-one. So. Yeah. Oh man. So I. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I. I average about. I read about a book a year since I've started writing. So. Wow. Um, yeah. I don't know. Writing is what I do to relax because I'm weird. Um, so in the free have you time heard of Netflix? I don't have. Uh, <laughs> what What is that? Yeah, no. yeah, man. So, so it, you know, you've got a, you've got, you're married. You have kids. A kid. Yeah. I have two kids. Yeah, two boys. Excellent. They are going to be. Um, they're going to be five and seven uh, next Saturday. They have the same birthday. Wow. wow. Nice. Wow. <laughs> that sounds yeah. uh, busy. Yeah. What are the so, odds? Same birthday. It's amazing. Really random. Not expected. But, <laughs> yeah. wow. Nice. So are you finding a new position allows you more time or less time to write? Um, yeah, it actually has not been quite as much time as I would have hoped, uh, honestly. And I think there are specific circumstances going on on campus that have caused that to happen. Right. It just seems like every time I'm like, I've got a season of I'm going to have time to really kind of buckle down and write something crazy happens. And so, you know, this is ministry. Um, So uh, it's actually been a lot more difficult to find time to write. Uh, With that being said, um, I do have a couple of projects that are coming up. My dissertation is going to be published um, within the next, well, first half of this year at some point. That was something to do with uh, scholastic method or? Yeah. So basically my, my dissertation was on the Lutheran scholastic method and I was criticizing people like Gerhard Verdi uh, and others who are part of what's called the radical Lutheran uh, way of doing theology. Uh, and I'm criticizing them and especially in, in responding to their criticism of, of Lutheran scholasticism, because they basically see pure Lutheranism as Luther. And then the scholastics came along, kind of ruined everything. So right. I, I'm trying to say, no, this is not true. Uh, and saying that scholastics actually speak to our world today in a way that modern figures really aren't speaking to the world today because they don't have the right answers yeah. uh, or, or the right methods of even answering questions well. So um, it, it's a defense of, of the scholastic method. And so that's kind of the beginning of a, of a project, which is then going to include volumes kind of working that out in different doctrines. Hmm. So um so that's a part of a series. And then I've also, uh, I've got a book on union with Christ that has been in the works for quite a while. And I've, that's, that's been, uh, a, the majority of my writing this, this year has really been on that. Man. Yeah. That's, uh, that's amazing. And, uh, that's encouraging. And I'm excited about that. It's just good to, good to know you brother and good to, um, yeah, just, I'm thankful you're around doing what you do. Um, can tell I'm kind of landing the plane. So if anyone wants to get a one final question in, Dude, uh, now's the time. I was going to say, it sounds like you're winding up, but I haven't got a chance to ask my massive, massive theological question yet. Just, I, I, I want to be mindful of John's time. Yes. I wanna, you know, it's like been an yeah. hour. It's look, been an hour I, now. So just get it out there, Andre. What are we doing? Are we sleeping? Well, look, it's a big one, though. It's a big one. I don't, I'm not sure we're ready for it. I think, you know, you've got to be in the right frame of mind for this kind of question. Look, Jordan, I've got, I got two questions, and I'll give you five minutes to answer them both. Okay, how's that? <laughs> Right. Sure. Sounds good. The first question is: What would you say to um, a a kind of reformed or <clears throat> reformed Baptist, reform whatever, um, who's looking at Lutheranism 
and is thinking, okay, cool, but slightly freaked out by the baptismal regeneration thing. Because a part of the Reformed culture has been like, those silly Catholics, they believe in baptismal regeneration. And to find out like someone from the, the mm -hmm. Reformation tradition also thinks that, it can freak out a lot of Reformed guys looking in. Um, so what would you say to them? That's question number one. All right. Question number two is, um, uh, I, on your, on your, um, one of your video things when you're talking about why I'm not Roman Catholic, yeah, um, you made the point that, uh, that you, you were talking, I think about justification and about Galatians about how, uh, you know, most reformed guys would think that's way, you know, Catholics have gone way out. They're basically committing the Galatian heresy. But you were thinking that actually there's the Galatians kind of applies and kind of doesn't. Right. And I just wondered if you could clarify, um, you know, are you going down a new perspective route there? Uh, like a kind of Tom Wright view of justification to kind of, is that where you're going with that or what's going on there? So, you know, two small questions, Jordan. You know, two small oh, boy. Questions. Okay, yeah, these are, like, huge questions. Uh, <laughs> I've gotta... Okay, my wife is waiting for me, too, so i got to answer quickly. Uh, let's see. So, baptism, um, yeah, this is the major question, right? And I've, I've done probably more on this question than anything else because this is the thing that's, that's raised all the time. Um, I, I think some of it, you know, is that there, there's a kind of romophobia on, on the part of a lot of Protestants, which is what I call it. But uh, the, this fear of anything that appears or seems Catholic kind of at, at, at the outset. And so it sounds Catholic, so it's rejected, especially anything sacramental. And I, I think when you, when the, if someone is reformed, I think the same hermeneutics that they use to come to certain doctrinal conclusions like uh on you know the two natures of christ or total depravity uh, of humanity or um the these other doctrines i think if they were to apply the the same hermeneutics to texts about baptism and do so honestly they would have to wrestle with the fact that the text teaches it um so ultimately we have to go back to what scripture says um uh, I would also say that because the question, I mean, there are, I, we could go on about this because there's so many questions that, that it raises. One of them is that there's this constant idea in people's heads that maybe not so as much in, in a confessional Presbyterian context, but probably more so in a Reformed Baptist context, which is uh, the idea that salvation through baptism is salvation by works. And I think a robust understanding of, of uh, the, Baptism as a means of grace and baptism as not my work, but God's work really helps to alleviate those concerns because this baptism is not understood by us as something that we are doing. This is something that Christ is doing. Uh, he's doing it through the hands of, of the minister, but uh, this, this is a miraculous work of God upon us. Faith mm -hmm. receives that, the, the promises, but the promises are objective as they're delivered there. Um, so that's there's so much more I could say, but this is my yeah. since I have to do that's this great. Quickly. No, that's great. That's okay. great. And, and you do a good uh, job of that in your book too. So that great divide. Um, I thought that was really helpful in seeing some of that. Thanks. I appreciate yeah. the plug for the book. Yeah. No worries. Thanks. Check it out. <laughs> so, right. Now you got five minutes, yeah. man. Don't don't skedaddle. Okay, five okay. minutes to get this next one down. <laughs> okay. So I'll do this one quickly. Uh, Roman Catholicism. Um, so historically, uh, Lutherans have never said that Roman Catholics are not saved. Um, 
this is something that Luther himself addresses in the Galatians commentary. Um, This is something that even when Lutherans are at their most harsh toward the Pope, they say this, well, the the Pope, they would say the Pope is the, the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness that Paul mentions to the Thessalonians. And they say, well, he's sitting in the temple of God, so the church still has to be the temple of God. So it's still the church. Uh, that's part of the argument. So uh, even in condemning the Pope, the Antichrist, that he's still in the church. So somehow Rome is still the church. Um, now, that, that doesn't mean that we don't disagree or think there's, there's corruption on, on many issues. But um, I, I think when... When someone like uh, James White, who, who's the first one that kind of comes to mind that, that probably has popularized this the most, just says, well, Roman Catholicism is just the Galatian heresy times 10. Um, I, I just don't think that's a you can make that equation. And yes, you asked about, you know, the new perspective. Um, I, I think one thing that N.T. Wright, and clearly I don't agree with the entirety of the new perspective because the whole entire thing is against Luther's, right? So <laughs> I can't, I can't totally agree with him. Um, but I think he's right that there is, there, there are two elements of the Galatian heresy, right? There, there is the one element, which is that Paul is concerned with salvation by works because salvation doesn't come by law because it comes by grace. It's received in faith, not works, uh, which is teased out in Galatians and Romans. But, but both Galatians and Romans also deal with this other issue that's, Salvation has to be by faith because it's not it's not just for the ethnic Jews. And I don't think you can ignore that that's a strong – I don't think you have to be, you know, new perspective on Paul to just see that that's a really strong part of Paul's argument. That That's a really primary part of what's going on with the Galatian heresy. So it is a kind of exclusivism. Um, that's not all the Galatian heresy is. I think there's a lot wrapped up in it. Um, so because of that, I, I think that there is a strong difference and, you know, we can get into other questions as, as well uh, in terms of Roman Catholic theology. One is that there is no such thing as one Roman Catholic doctrine of justification. There are so many nuances and figures who have written on the issue. And I, I think I've seen a lot of, I've seen people who convert to Rome from, from a reformed tradition because they read the council of Trent and realize there's actually nuance in how they talk about grace and justification say, oh, this actually isn't what I thought it was. Hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I think with all of that, um, it, it doesn't quite fit with this. There, there's no one-to-one correlation of, of Rome's view and that of, of, of the Judaizers. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Well done. That's that good. is good. Thanks. Well done. All right. all right. Well, hey, we uh, really appreciate you, brother. Thank you for your time on this. Uh, it was very helpful for me personally and uh, really enjoyed it, man. It was a blast. So um, keep doing what you're doing. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. Sure, sure thing. Sounds good. Thanks, Jordan. Appreciate it, brother. All right, guys. Thanks for see having ya. me. We'll see you.